0: Yes, nice work, Sam. Absolutely. Uh, Hi, friends. My name is Matt. I'm so glad to be here today, subbing in for Kenny. Kenny is subbing for me in Pryor Lake. I told the people of Pryor Lake that Kenny would be wearing a toga to get them in the mood to study Romans today. So tune in and see if that is true, if Kenny, in fact, did wear a toga as promised or not. Uh, It's exciting to see the college ministry and the different events that are planned. And as I watch that, I want to tell you about someone that we baptized last week at the Prior Lake campus. He's a 20-year-old guy who didn't grow up in church. And during the pandemic, God started working in him. And he opened the Bible and started reading the Bible. And he started watching preachers online. I know what you're thinking. This is going to be a story about him watching friendship preachers and the great work that it did in his life. Nope, not at all. Uh, In fact, uh, when we met together, I said, oh, who you been watching? And he said, John MacArthur. And he'd been watching John MacArthur's sermons regularly. And he'd been led to a place of faith in Jesus Christ. And as he was watching these sermons, he realized, wait a minute. As I listen to the word of God, I, I not only need to come to faith in Jesus, i got to be baptized. And, and it's not enough for me to just watch preachers. i got to be a part of the body of Christ. And so he came to meet with me one day, and he said, uh, I googled where to be baptized, and Friendship Church came up. And so I watched a few sermons, it seems like you guys are great, Uh, could you guys baptize me? And could I be a part of this church? And do you have a college group? I'd really like to be a part of the college group. And I was like, yes, yes. Yes. Yes, yes, to all three of those things. And so we had a chance last week to baptize him and connect him with the college group. Uh, Very exciting to see God work through an 85-year-old preacher in California in order to bring this 20-year-old young man from Minnesota to faith in Jesus Christ and to obedience to him. God works in all kinds of fun ways. Uh, And we're excited about that. As we enter into our sermon today from the Romans Road Sermon Series, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 2. That's right, we are entering into chapter 2 today. The book of Romans is all about the good news of God's salvation. It's all about the gospel. As a matter of fact, our memory verse for this sermon series is what? Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. It's the good news of God's salvation. And 11 people got into the waters of baptism last week and declared the good news of Jesus Christ in their lives. And we're thankful and we are excited about that. The gospel's the good news. But how good is the good news to you? The gospel's the good news. That's literally what it means. But how good is the good news to you? How good good news is to us is based in part on how much we recognize we need that good news, how desperate we are for that good news. Say, I had a check for $10,000, and I'm going to hand it to someone. That's good news, right? Almost anyone who's going to receive that check would declare it to be good news. But let's say I took that check for $10,000 and I handed it to Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. How excited are they going to be about my $10,000? These are guys worth tens and tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars. They're going to take my check for $10,000, politely say thank you, later in the day when they're ready to get rid of their gum, they'll wad it up in the check and set it on their desk, or they'll blow their nose with it, right? What is $10,000 to them? How excited are they going to be about it? Eh, yeah, okay, thanks. But let's say that I gave that check for $10,000 to someone who was behind on all of their bills, They're late on their mortgage or rent payments. They're about to lose their home. They're about to lose all of their possessions. And the amount they owe on all of these bills that they're behind is $10,000. And I hand them that check for $10,000, and now they can stay in their home. Now they can keep the things that they own. What is the level of excitement and thankfulness in that person's life? A little bit higher than the billionaire's. And that's what Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 7. He says, uh, uh, pretend God forgives someone of a tiny debt debt, and pretend that he forgives somebody of a great big debt. Who's going to be more thankful, more loving, more joyful? He says, of course, it's the person who recognizes they had a great big debt forgiven. There is no one who has a tiny debt before God. All of us have a great big debt before God, but do we recognize it? Because how good the good news is to us depends on our recognition of how desperate we are for that good news. And and Paul wants us now that he has announced the good news in the first 17 verses of Romans to understand how desperate our situation is so that we will fully understand the goodness of the good news in our life. And it didn't take very long last week for us to see just how desperate we are because we recognize God's angry. He is angry about sin. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Last week we saw that God is angry about people's sin. He has wrath towards people's sin. Just the really big ones, right? Just the sins that make the news? What does that say? Towards all unrighteousness. And ungodliness. Every sin, no matter how small we may think it is, is an infinite offense before a holy and righteous God. And it all brings about His wrath. And last week we saw that God's wrath is not some sort of emotional outburst and tantrum. That's not what it means by the word wrath here. There's a Greek word that means emotional outburst, and it's the Greek word thumos. You you might hear thermometer or thermostat in that. It literally means to get hot and explode, like when I five putt a green and toss my putter into the pond next to it. That's thumos, emotional explosion. That's a hypothetical. <clears throat> yeah, sure, sorry, sure. Mark Aline was in the first service. I said actually, Mark seen me five putt several greens. So, yeah, that that kind of thumos is never. The wrath of God. That word for emotional explosion is never used about God's wrath. Instead, the word that's used in the Greek is the Greek word orge. It's an organizational, thoughtful anger and wrath. It's not an emotional explosion or tantrum. It's a reasoned and just wrath that God pours out. And just because you say, oh, good, it's reasoned and it's thoughtful, that doesn't mean it's any less potent. God gives us occasionally little glimpses of his wrath here on the earth. Think of the flood that we studied a few weeks ago. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah in the New Testament. Think of Ananias and Sapphira, where God pours out tiny bits of his wrath that are reminders to all of us that there is a day of judgment coming in which his wrath will be fully poured out upon sin. That's, that's the bad news. And it makes us desperate, desperate for the gospel so that we fully appreciate the good news that God has given us. And as we were studying last week, we came to a place that listed 21 sins. Do you remember that list? 21 different sins that bring the wrath of God. It's not a complete list. There are other sins, but it was an illustrative list, right? An illustration of the kinds of sins that bring the wrath of God. Things like gossiping. Things like telling falsehoods or deceiving. Things like causing factions among people. Things like disobedience to parents. He says these things bring the wrath of God. Now as you look at that, I want you to see a very important thing about what he was talking about last week. And that is the pronouns that he used. As he was describing these sinful people who were bringing about the wrath of God through their sins, look at the pronouns he used because they're all in the third person. They did not honor him as God. They became futile in their thinking, they became fools. God gave them up. There's a whole lot of them and they. And it would be very easy to read last week's passage and say, Yes, Paul, give it to them, those terrible pagans out there. They're all awful. Just look at the world around us. They're all driving it into oblivion. Ah, it's awful out there. And just focus on the thems and the theys. Maybe even to focus on the thems and the theys sitting down the row from us this morning. But this is never God's design for how we use his word. And if we were tempted last week to say, yes, give it to them, all those thems and theys, Then the beginning of this week's passage is meant to slap us up across side the head because he changes the pronouns that he's using. Look at the first two words, therefore you have no excuse. And with that change in pronoun, the Holy Spirit points his finger at the believers in the church in Rome, points his finger at believers in every church or people who are in the chairs in every church and says, friends, friends, This isn't just an out-there problem. This isn't just a they and them problem. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, That you'll escape the judgment of God? What is Paul saying here? He's saying, those of you who are reading this letter in the church at Rome, recognize that there is sin that's bringing the wrath of God out there among the they's and the them's. But please recognize that there is sin within the body. There's sin of those who are sitting in the chairs And that if we are focused on the sins of others rather than the sins of ourselves, then we're doing something that God doesn't want us to do. God never wants us to be primarily focused on the sins of others rather than the sins of self. The people in the Roman church might have been filled with gossiping, but all of their attention is on the sexual sin out there in the pagan world. The people in the Roman church might have been filled with coveting other people's stuff, But all of their attention was on the lies and deceits out there in the pagan world. God says, you guys, I don't want you ever focusing primarily on the sins of others. I always want you focusing on your own mess, your own sin, your own brokenness, and how you need to repent of that. In the Old Testament, the prophet's message was aimed at Israel. They were surrounded by All of these pagan nations that were worshiping idols, sacrificing children in the worship, all of these awful things that were going on. And yet, while occasionally these other nations are mentioned by the prophet, 90% of what the prophets write about is the trouble in Israel, the sin in Israel, and their need to repent. Because God's focus in how we use his word is that we are to bring it internally, In order to examine our own lives and come to repentance, not to look at others, not to look out there and say, oh, they're awful. Come on. As I often say, God's word is designed to be a scalpel in which we carve away at the sin and mess in our own lives. It's never meant to be a hammer with which we hit other people over the head, right? The primary design of God's word is that we would examine our own hearts with it and seek his surgery in our own lives, not take it and hammer other people over the head with it. Jesus says it like this, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus acknowledges this great problem that we have in our human self of wanting to focus on the sin of others rather than our own sin, doesn't he? It's been there since the beginning when Adam said, the woman you gave me, let's focus on her mess instead of my own. And ever since then, we've wanted to focus on the sin and brokenness of others rather than our own, and Jesus says, that's never to be the way that my people operate. Instead, they are to take the word into them. And the Holy Spirit is to use it primarily, first and foremost, to convict them in their lives. To bring about repentance in them. And Jesus says, but before you start dealing with anybody else and their sinfulness, sit down. And with me and my Holy Spirit, examine your own life. Seek sinfulness in you and repent of it. And then when you're done with that, examine yourself again. And repent. Examine yourself again and repent. And then maybe then you'll be ready to have a Galatians chapter six verse one conversation in which you come to a fellow believer and say, "Let's work on this sin that is in your life together." Galatians six one says that's always supposed to be done gently, graciously. Only after we have thoroughly examined ourselves could we ever think of dealing with the sin of another. There are those who heard last week's list of 21 sins and said, Yeah, it's awful out there. There's a bunch of terrible people all around me. That's not a good sign. Others heard those lists of 21 sins and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says it is those who go away justified. We're to be a people whose primary focus is on our own sin and our own mess. We, we got plenty. We don't need to focus on the sins of others judging others when we've got our own house to be getting in order. He says, if we live like this, then we waste our chance. Wasting your chance. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He says, you are presuming on the kindness of God. He he means you're wasting your opportunity. This word for presume means to take advantage of something in a negative way. Let's say I've got a gambling problem. And and I'm into bookies uh, for $100,000. I owe it. I'm in a lot of trouble and you find out about my $100,000 in gambling debt and that I'm in a lot of trouble and you come to me and you say, Matt, I want to give you $100,000. And I say, thank you. You're the best. And then I take that $100,000 and I go to the track over here and I spend that $100,000 gambling. I have presumed upon your kindness. I have taken advantage of your kindness in a negative way. And that's what this passage is talking about. People who continue on in their own sin, focusing on the sins of others, but living in sin in their own life, they are presuming on the kindness of God because he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. What do our sins deserve? Our sins deserve the immediate... Wrath and punishment for God. Each and every one of them deserve for us to die physically, spiritually, and eternally immediately. That's what our sins deserve before a holy and infinitely righteous God. But the Bible says he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Instead, he is kind and he is patient so that we will what? What is his kindness meant to lead us to? Repentance so that we will repent in this life and turn of our sin and turn to Him. He doesn't give us what we deserve, immediate judgment, immediate wrath, immediate discipline, immediate punishment. Instead, He is kind and He is patient. Our God is slow to anger. You heard that phrase used of our God? He's slow to anger. Never to anger? Nope, that's not what it says. Wrath is coming on the day of judgment. But He is slow In getting there, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve so that we'll repent, so that we will turn to him. They're they're storing up wrath for themselves, wasting their chance. And in the final verses of our passage today, they remind us that this wrath of God is coming upon people who wind up on the wrong path, who, who choose the wrong path in life. There are two paths in life there's a path that we are born on, and a path that we need to be on. He writes about these two paths. He will render to each one according to his what? On the day of judgment, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give what? Eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, What will they get? Wrath and fury. Wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also for the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Here, God describes two possible paths that people can be on. He says there's a path of goodness and love. And people are motivated to be on this path by a desire for honor and glory the way that God defines it. They desire eternal life with God. And they have entered a path of goodness and love. And on the day of judgment, what do they get? Eternal life. And then Paul describes in verse 7 and 8 a path of selfishness and disobedience. And people who walk this path on the day of judgment, what do they get? He says, wrath and fury, right? Wrath and fury. Anyone have a hard time with this? A- anyone have a hard time with the idea that God is going to assign judgment based upon our, what, what did the first verse say? Our works, right? That he will assign judgment based on our works, If you have grown up in a church that has taught you over and over again, your works have nothing to do with your salvation, then these verses are extremely difficult for you. I'll say that again. If you've grown up in a church that has taught you that your works have nothing to do with your salvation, these verses are extremely difficult for you. Because the clear teaching of Scripture is that our works are involved in our salvation. Now, before you tar and feather me, right, let me back out here and show what Romans 2 is talking about in the greater context of the Scripture and its teaching. Because we need to look at the whole big picture here in order to, stand, in order to understand what Romans 2 is talking about. There are two pathways, a pathway of goodness and love that leads to eternal life, Romans 2 says, and a pathway of selfishness and disobedience that leads to wrath. All of us are born on the pathway of selfish and disobedience. Over the next two weeks, he's going to hammer this home. He's going to say, there is no one righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is sinful. Everyone is selfish. Everyone is on this bottom path. So how do we move from the bottom path of wrath to the top path that leads to life? Here's what the scripture teaches. For by grace you have been saved. Anyone heard this verse? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We're all born on the wrong path. And the only way that we can move from the path that leads to death to the path that leads to life is through faith. It is by God's grace through faith. And Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 wants to make it very clear. It is not by your works. There is no amount of good works that you can do in order to move from the bottom path to the top path. The cause, I want you to hang on to that word, the cause of your salvation, the cause of you moving from the bottom path to the top path is faith in Jesus Christ. What does our memory verse for this passage say? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who what? Believes, that's right, for everyone who believes. The only way to move from the bottom path to the top path is through belief and faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. There's no works that we can do that cause us to move from one path to another. And because... There is no way in which works are a cause of us moving from one path to another. We might mistakenly say, then works play no role in our salvation whatsoever. But that's not correct. What role do works play in our salvation? Right? Works are the every time evidence that we've moved paths. Right? Works are the every time evidence that our faith is genuine. Works are the every time evidence that we have been saved. And what I mean by every time evidence is there is never a person who places their faith in Jesus Christ and moves to the top column and continues to live like someone in the bottom column. That, that doesn't happen because the Spirit of God dwells in them and produces a whole new set of fruit. He transforms their life. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. There's all kinds of people who claim to have faith in Jesus if a person claims to have faith, but their life isn't transformed, that faith is useless. It's not a genuine or real faith. A genuine or real faith is always proven true by a transformed life, by a change. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6 says, For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. What is it that counts? It's faith. But faith never comes alone. Faith always works its way to love for God and love for other people, each and every time. And so our works are never the cause of us moving from the bottom column to the top column, but they are the evidence that we have a genuine faith and have moved from the bottom column to the top column. We have moved from the pathway of death to the pathway of life, and it's proven true by the change that takes place in our life. Jesus says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every time a person enters into a relationship with Jesus, genuinely has a faith in Him, transformation begins to take place from the inside that shows its way to the outside. Now, like a tree, perhaps we don't bear all the good fruit we're meant to bear in year one, or year three, or year five. Right? It takes a tree a while to mature to bear all of the fruit that it is going to bear. And the same is true for us. There is a maturing process, but we should see that growth. That is the evidence that we have a genuine faith and have been saved by Jesus Christ. And now here is the part that Romans 2 is talking about and that is so often missed by believers. We talk a lot about these things at Friendship because, in my opinion... The American church hasn't done a great job of helping people to understand how these things work together. On the day of judgment, right, when judgment day comes, God is going to judge us based on the evidence of our lives. God is going to perfectly and rightly look at our lives, and He is going to be able to tell did they have a genuine faith in Jesus that moved them to a life of goodness and love and righteousness? Or did they claim to have a faith in Jesus but continue to live in selfishness and disobedience? God will rightly and perfectly judge us and he will do so based on the works of our life. That's why Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will Of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, there are a lot of people who are at some point in their life gonna pray a prayer because they were told to. There's a lot of people who are gonna raise their hand at a conference because they told to. There's a lot of people who are gonna claim, yeah, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. They're gonna go to church every week. He says, none of these are the evidence that God is looking for on the day of judgment that proves our faith to be true. What proves our faith to be true? We enter into a life of loving obedience with our God. And when God sees that evidence, which he sees perfectly, infinitely, we can't hide from him. When he sees that, he says, yes, you're one of my children. You bear the family resemblance. Come and be a part of my kingdom. Matthew 25, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. When did they do this? Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, you've done it unto me. What is Jesus describing in this passage? He's describing a number of different actions of love. You saw a need and you met it. You acted in love. And those of you who've acted in love, you come and enter in to this eternal goodness. Did they earn that eternal goodness because of their good works? No. There's absolutely no amount of good works we can do to cause us to move from the lower pathway to the upper pathway. That's like the seventh time I've said that, right? But those good works that we enter into, loving God, loving other people, those are absolutely the evidence that through faith in Jesus Christ we've entered that upper path and God rightly judges us based on the evidence. The evidence that God looks for in our lives isn't that at some point we prayed a prayer, some point we raised our hands, some point we got dunked in the water. Those can all be good things, but that's not the evidence. The evidence is the loving works of God that are displayed in our life. That's why in Galatians chapter 5, we read, The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness and orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why not? Is it that these sins are unforgivable? No, of course not. These are almost the exact same kinds of sins listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul says, Such were some of you, but you've been washed. You've been cleansed, right? There is no sin that God cannot forgive. The point of Galatians chapter 5 is those who continue on in the lifestyle of the bottom pathway have never genuinely placed their faith in Christ or they wouldn't be living that way anymore. So they can't inherit the kingdom of God. They don't have the every time evidence of a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12 verse 35, The good man brings about good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings about evil things out of the evil stored up in him. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying whatever's on the inside, it makes its way out eventually. Right? Uh, what's the old P.T. Barnum saying? Uh, you may fool some of the people all of the time or all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all of the time. Or something like that. Right? God sees it all. And you can't fool God ever. Not even some of the time. Eventually, what is on the inside makes its way out. I may be able to control it for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning, but eventually it makes its way out. As I'm raising kids and going to work and experiencing all kinds of things that go wrong in my life, eventually what is in here makes its way out there. And it's the evidence of what's genuinely in my heart. Which is why, listen to what Jesus says next. These verses won't be on the screen, but listen to what he says next. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. God says, on the day of judgment, he will be able to render the verdict based on our words. Why? Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. They are an accurate indication. Our words, our actions are an accurate indication of what's going on inside us. And whether or not through faith in Jesus Christ, we've ever moved from the bottom path to the top path. I'm going to come back to this again because it is so important. There is no work, no amount of goodness on your part that can ever cause you to move from the bottom path to the top path. Our works don't function like that. It is only through faith and belief in Jesus that we can move from the bottom path to the top path. But our good works of loving God and loving other people are absolutely the evidence that we have changed paths. And Romans chapter 2 says, On the day of judgment, God will rightly judge us based on the evidence that exists in our lives that we are on the upper path, that we are a part of his kingdom, that we are a part of his family. So what's the big question as we look at this? Which path are we on? Isn't that the big question that we really need to answer? Which path are we on? Have we through faith entered the top path of goodness and love and righteousness Or as we look at our lives, is it still characterized by the selfishness and disobedience of the bottom path? Do we see growth in our life? When God's Spirit comes in and dwells us, the Bible says there's certain kinds of fruit that He produces. Do I see an increase in those fruit in my life? As I examine myself this morning, if I say, I'm still on the bottom path, what do I do? The answer is not to work really hard at goodness and love to try and get to the top path. I hope I've made that clear. We can only enter the top path through faith in Jesus Christ. And God has never called us to try and tape good fruit on the outside of the tree in order to fool people. He he can't be fooled. Instead, if I recognize I'm on the bottom path, the key is for me to place my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ. Because when I do that, His Spirit comes to dwell within me and He changes me. Jeremiah says He gives us a new heart and a new spirit that love more than anything to be obedient to Him. Are we always obedient to Him? No. But we love more than anything to be obedient to Him. Because He has given us that new heart and that new spirit that comes with knowing Him. If you're here this morning and you're like, I think I'm still on the bottom path. I'd encourage you to place your faith and trust in Jesus. To to cry out to him. Say, God, I, I repent of my old way. I repent of seeking life that is about me. I repent of sin and disobedience. I turn to you. I place my faith in you. If that's something you do today or something you have questions about, there's a place on your card to mark on that Connect card that you got on the way in. Uh, To Mark, and we'd love to follow up or connect more with you about questions that you have because there's nothing more important here. John chapter 3, verse 36 might be the best summary of the gospel anywhere in the New Testament. It says, Whoever believes in the Son has what? Eternal life. How do we gain eternal life? Believing in the Son. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Shouldn't the next part say, whoever does not believe the Son? Do you see how closely belief and obedience are tied together here? He says, if we continue along the path of disobedience to God and the teachings of His Son, Jesus Christ, the wrath of God remains on us. But if we will just believe, if we will trust in Him, then there is eternal life. If you're here today and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you are on that path that leads to life, we want to celebrate that again this week by taking the Lord's Supper together. We recognize that we can't move from the bottom path to the top path on our own. There's no works we can do. There's no way that we can muster up enough gumption to get from the bottom to the top. That isn't how it works. It's only through the work of Christ. It's only through faith in the work of Christ that we can move from bottom path to top path. And every time we come here, we celebrate that, what God has done in our life in order to make that possible. And so I want to invite you, we're going to uh, sing a song here for a minute to go and get the elements and then return to your seats. And when you return to your seats, uh, just hold those elements and I'll come out and we'll take them together. Father, we are so thankful for what you have done in order to bring about the salvation that is possible in you. Jesus, we are so thankful for what you have done in order to draw us to you. God, work in us now. Holy Spirit, fall upon us now. God, we want to be yours.